Turn in your Bibles again to the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 21. We'll look at verses 12 to 17 today. As we mentioned the last time we studied Matthew, that uh, we're in that part that we hear about every year on Palm Sunday about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Well, today we come to the passage just after that. Perhaps of more interest, actually, what happened after Jesus arrived in Jerusalem? Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowd, but if everyone loved him on Palm Sunday, how did he get so ugly that they crucified him on Good Friday? What did Jesus do that was so offensive, so controversial? Part of the answer is in our text today. A record of Jesus' first actions that day that he rode in to uh, Jerusalem. Let me read the text, verse 12 down to 17. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my home will be a called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Here's quite a scene in Jerusalem. There were thousands of people packed into Jerusalem because it was the Passover time. The temple was the focus of all of that activity. So Jesus entered the t- as Jesus entered the temple in, in, in midst of all the throng and all the, the chaos... Uh, he might have expected that in the temple there would be a place of peace, there would be a place of worship. But instead, there was the stench of cattle and birds in cages, the clamor of buying and selling, the bartering and, and, and arguing, and the noise of animals bleeding, and you might watch where you step. Jesus was outraged. He grabbed tables and upended them, spilling coins all over the floor. How dare you turn my father's house into a den of robbers? He drove out the animals and those who were selling them. He barked commands to those with cages full of birds. Get those out of here. Yet in the midst of the confusion, he stopped and he ministered to the blind and the lame. Not in anger, but with compassion. Meanwhile, the children, always less inhibited than adults, took up the cry of his ride into into, uh, Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. And the religious leaders finally had all they could stand, and they confronted Jesus about the theology of their children, and Jesus sent them back to read their Bibles again. He, He said, haven't you read? Haven't you read? And he quoted them the scriptures. We might easily miss the impact of this event as we quickly read over a lot of things happening at once. But on that day, Jesus really stirred things up in the temple. Why? What was going on? And what are we supposed to learn from it? I want to suggest three things this morning. 
The first is this, that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. In Christian circles nowadays, we become accustomed to impassioned pleas urging us to make Jesus Lord of our hearts, to give him a chance to see if maybe he's not what we're looking for. This Jesus is not begging anyone for anything. He's giving orders and making demands. He's not waiting to see if people will accept him. He is zealously doing the work of his father, whether people like it or not. He's not pleading with people to like him. He is offending them right and left, acting like he is God. This passage is shouting us, Jesus is the Lord. Consider the claims inherent in Jesus' actions. By cleansing the temple, Jesus is directly challenging the authority of the high priest. For all of those things were in the temple by the high priest's authorization. But Jesus set himself up as the Lord of the temple. When he quotes the verse from Isaiah 56 saying, my house will be a house of prayer, it's quite obvious that he is claiming the temple to be his house in a way not true of anyone else. Because Jesus is the Lord. In the temple, he again healed the blind and the lame. We see, we see, as we see repeatedly in the Gospels, these acts of healing were never just demonstrations of brute force. Jesus healed people as authenticating signs that he is the Lord of creation, the Lord over the power of sin and death. Jesus is the Lord. And then Jesus accepted the messianic praise of the children. He didn't challenge their acclamation that he was the son of David, the heir to the king, uh, to King David's throne. He actually defended them. Oh, but Jesus went way beyond just defending them. For in defending the children's action, he quoted from Psalm 8, which speaks of the propriety of praising only one person, only the Lord God. And Jesus applied that rule of praise to the praise he was receiving from the children, for Jesus is the Lord. Make no mistake about the meaning of these events. Jesus did not lose his cool, fly off the handle, freak out. No, no, no. Here we see God in human flesh showing us a touch of the wrath of his holiness, which demands the removal of all defilement from before his face. Michael Card captured the point of this event in a song that he wrote years ago. He said, the lamb is a lion who's roaring with rage at the empty religion that's filling their days. They'll flee from the harm of the carpenter's strong arm and come to know the scourging anger of the Lord. For Jesus is the Lord. Today, you and I must deal with Jesus. Sometimes we, only, we erroneously think we're in the driver's seat while he patiently waits for our decision. 
whether or not we will favor him with our attention. This morning I proclaim to you, he is the Lord. Whether you acknowledge it or not changes nothing. He is the Lord. And his lordship didn't end at the temple. He has now risen from the dead. And having ascended into heaven, he is now sits at the Father's right hand as the king over all kings and the Lord over all lords. All authority belongs to him. And he directs you and me to submit to his rule. If we refuse, we too will be the objects of his wrath one day. Not in a token cleansing of an earthly temple, but in the eternal removal of everything sinful from his holy presence. Jesus is the Lord. Don't take him on. Don't. Oh, but his absolute authority does not mean he's harsh and, and uncaring. There's a second truth here. One of the truths I love to proclaim from the scriptures, and you've heard it in several different sermons, Jesus cares about the nobodies. Jesus cares about the nobodies. These days we might look around the church and conclude that Jesus is the local deity of affluent American middle class people. Our text teaches us something quite different. Jesus is the friend of the nobodies of the world. That truth is presented in three ways here that aren't obvious to us, but I think you'll see that they're, they're true. The first, Jesus is concerned about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were nobodies in the Jewish mind. God had chosen Israel to be his people. He'd made them a great nation. But he never indicated that he was unconcerned about everyone else in the face of the earth. Indeed, Israel to, was to be a light to the nations that they might see God's glory. And so even the temple in Jerusalem, which was primarily for the Jewish people's worship, even there there was a courtyard for the Gentiles. William Lane describes it. This was a wide enclosure which provided access to the interior parts of the temple precincts. It was protected by certain regulations, prohibiting the use of the forecourt as a thoroughfare. It was an area consecrated for the use of Gentiles who had not yet become full converts to Judaism. Oh, but at the direction of the high priest, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the non-Jews' only place of access to God, had been transformed into a cattle market and a currency exchange. Any interested Gentile might have had in knowing Jehovah now had to be su subjected to the clamor and stench of this activity in the temple. Imagine if your only place of worship was at the cattle auction. So in verse 13, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 56. There God spoke of his house being a house of prayer for the nations. The Jews in their nationalistic religious smugness disregarded such statements. But Jesus still cared about the Gentiles, the nobodies 
of the world. Secondly, we see uh, Jesus' concern for the nobodies and his concern for the blind and the lame. What's not readily uh, obvious to us, though it was to everyone back then, is that the blind and lame could not, even Jewish blind and lame people, could not go into the temple. These days, we're very concerned to have handicap ramps and, and uh, listening, hearing devices so that everyone has equal access to what goes on and when we worship. But back then, the handicapped were forbidden to enter the temple at all, partly because of the requirements of the, of the law about uh, ritual pur- purification and partly just out of a long Jewish tradition. So the blind and the lame of Israel were only allowed... <laughs> Where? In the courtyard of the Gentiles. They could never offer a sacrifice. They could never join the worshipers appearing before the Lord. Ah, but when Jesus saw the blind and the lame, he stopped and healed them. Think about it. When he did that, he made them instantly acceptable in the temple. The teachers of the law were oblivious to the blind and lame beggars. They had become invisible just like people today become invisible, the blind and lame beggars. But Jesus saw them and had compassion on them for Jesus cares about the nobodies. third way we see that he cares about the nobodies, and that's his concern for the children. It's been said, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. I think the first time I heard that, I was probably less than five. And somewhat mouthy. But these children were so excited about what they had seen that they noisily took up the chant of of, 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 of the entrance, Jesus' entrance into, into Jerusalem. Hosanna to the son of David. That is the Messiah. Nearby taking it all in were the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what those children are saying? In other, in other words, we don't think they know their theology well enough to be quoting scripture like that. They're becoming a disruptive element in our worship here, Jesus. You need to hush them up. (laughs) They asked the wrong person when they asked Jesus to silence the children's praise. This is the Jesus who sat a child on his lap as a model of his disciple. This is a Jesus who said, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom is made up of them. This is the Jesus who stopped everything he was doing to heal heal a 12-year-old girl. This is the Jesus who said that it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the ocean to drown than to offend one of these little ones that believe in him. So Jesus explained that his concern for the children was God's concern. He quoted Psalm 8, verse 2, reminding them that God ordained that he would be praised by children, even by 
infants, even by nursing babies. Jesus is concerned for the nobodies of the world. Even the little children who are noisy and have trouble paying attention in church. You children that are here this morning, I want you to know Jesus cares for you. This is not just for your parents. This is for you. This worship is for children. God loves to hear you sing. You see, Jesus cares about people whom others consider nothing. The Gentiles, the handicapped, the children. Dear people, if you're feeling overwhelmed by you, by your insignificance. This message is for you. It is not those who are acceptable to society, the beautiful people that God especially cares about. In fact, in the coming of Christ's kingdom, there's this great reversal. He calls people who are not rich, not famous, not powerful, those who are nothings, that's whom he calls his disciples. And so I call you to Jesus with confidence, knowing that he will, you will not be turned away. He doesn't ask you to make something of your life in order to come to him. He asks you to come when you are nothing, and he makes you acceptable as a member of his kingdom. And as for those of us who get smug thinking we really are the kind of people God likes best, I tell you God is calling people that we would never touch. Jesus cares about prostitutes and drug addicts, illegal aliens, ghetto kids, unborn children, terminally ill. If we don't care about them, we don't know things important to Jesus, for he loves the nobodies. The nobodies. One more truth before we close. Come, worship the Lord. Come, worship the Lord. Let's be honest. Christianity in our day is big business. It's a big publishing business. It's big entertainment business. It's big fundraising business. It's big building business. It's big educational business. It's big political business. It's all so easy to justify. It all seems so necessary. But be careful because... This temple business that we find repulsive was also necessary too. But it got out of hand until some folks completely lost sight of what God wanted. God called them to come and worship him. That primary truth needs to control everything else. Come and worship. 
Consider the contrast between these, the concerns of these leaders and the concerns of Jesus. These leaders were concerned. It's a big problem we have here. In the book of Exodus, God required a half-shekel temple tax from everyone. The problem is the Roman coinage had no shekels. Oh, what are we going to do? The closest thing was to go up out of Israel up to Tyre. They had shekels. And so they set up a currency exchange in the temple where you could exchange your, uh, your, your Roman money for shekels. And of course, you can't offer such a service free of charge. There's got to be a fee, and small fees lead to extortion. No wonder Jesus called it a den of robbers. They were also concerned for the people needing proper sacrifices to offer. You're supposed to bring a lamb or a small goat or a dove, perhaps. But that's a long ways from your home up in Galilee, maybe. Bring some animals down to the temple to have them sacrificed. What we need is a temple vendor who could sell animals when needed after you arrived. Plus, if you bought an animal from home, it might not be pure enough. But if you bought it in the temple, it's pre-approved. Never mind the fact that the town council had already set up a market nearby. Caiaphas, the high priest, set up his own market right in the temple itself, right in the courtyard of the Gentiles. Oh, do you see a pattern here? They were concerned for business, temple business. They were concerned to raise money. They were concerned to control people. Jesus was concerned for prayer. That's why God established the temple in the first place. He didn't need a place to live. He was not building a tourist attraction. It was not a make-work project for the clergy who had nothing productive to do. The temple was for people's worship. He called them to come bringing sacrifices of repentance and thanksgiving. Come and glorify and enjoy the Lord God. And God hasn't changed, you know. This morning he calls you to come and worship. It's you he wants. Your allegiance. Your life. Your heart. Your affection. You can't buy him off with money. Or dutifully going through religious formalities. He calls you to pray to spend time with him, to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. He calls you to come and worship him. In contrast to the concerns of the leaders, consider the children. Again, the leaders were concerned about procedure. 
concerned about proper theological formulation with the impropriety of children's involvement. But God ordained praise. It all made perfect sense to the kids. They had seen Jesus acclaimed by the crowd. If he was the Messiah yesterday, he's the Messiah today. He didn't claim, did he not claim this temple as his own house? Did he not heal the blind and the lame? They did not need theology books to read. They saw Jesus. He was their hero. They knew who he was, and they praised him. But the leaders are executed beyond their usefulness. They got so caught up in their own learning, they missed the obvious. So instead of joining the praise of the little children, bubbling with excitement that God had sent his great Messiah, they felt threatened. And they began to challenge Jesus. They chose warfare over worship. when I call you to come and worship the Lord. Our choice is simple. We can be like the children or we can be like the leaders. We can worship Jesus or we can fight him. I call you to set aside your sophistry and join the children in their delight. Jesus is the Lord. Like it or not, he is the Lord. Jesus cares about the nobodies. You can be offended by that, or you can be profoundly comforted. So come and worship the Lord. Stop trying to fight him. Take up children's songs. Worship. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we get pretty good about religious procedure, formalities. We're not so good about worship. Oh, we come to worship service, but for life to be all about singing your praise, praying, spending time with you and loving you, and doing everything to bring honor to you, and seeing your hand in everything and acknowledging it. We're not so good about that, Lord. We kind of lay everything aside. We walk out of the building. So may we learn from the children to come and worship. Thank you that you care about us no matter who we are. Thank you that you revealed yourself to us, Jesus. Lord of lords, king of kings, you're worthy. Amen.